Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Our Father, we thank you for another day of giving us. Thank you for this opportunity to uh, look back in history upon uh, your people and the work that they did in uh, securing a cannon for us, Father. We, we pray through this you'd give us an understanding of the great work they did, uh, the love they had for you, and, and the effort they put into uh, your word, and how we can have confidence today, Lord, that, that your scripture that we do possess is your word to your people, and uh, love you all the more for it. We thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, maybe a little bit short today in our lesson. I woke up not feeling well today, and uh, so didn't have time to or energy to get everything tied together, but I think we'll be, we'll be close um, in our time. Um, okay, we started, last week we looked at the uh, sort of a new period or new subject of canonicity, that is the dating of the canon. When can we start dating the canon? Uh, when did it start forming? We know that there was a period where there was a uh, uh, sort of oral tradition and written tradition going side by side, and we'll see more of that uh, later today or, or next week. And, uh, but as that oral tradition started to fade, as the apostles died off, uh, then the church became to, to rely more and more on, on the text, on, on books, on the actual textual canon. And the, the theory that we're arguing against is that that was forced upon the church by other men. And we saw last week that the one, sort of the, the instigator or the one who did this, is a man by the name of Irenaeus, who wrote about 180, 190 A.D. And uh, he's the first one uh, to use the, the Gospels. He's the first one to cite explicitly uh, Scripture in, in a large way, in a very unique way, where, you know, thus saith Paul and uh, so forth. And he did it, again, in, in many, many ways, many times. And um, one particular thing that he says is, is that there's basically he's defending four Gospels, that there are four Gospels, and that he uses this weird numerology to, to defend these Gospels. Remember, he looks says, well, there's four Gospels, and uh, there's also four corners of the earth. There's north, east, south, and west, four directions on the compass. Uh, there are four winds on the earth as well, and uh, he refers to the four faces on the cherubim. And he says, you know, that, that proves that we have four Gospels, that validates the Gospels. And I, had, uh, I think Eddie asked a question, is that all he said? And that's pretty much all he said. But let, let's keep in mind one thing I didn't make clear is that he's not proving the authority of the Gospels. He's proving the fact that there are four of them. And remember, this time, there were the, um, the Gnostics who were trying to add Gospels, four, five, or six, and there were the... Uh, Marconians who were trying to take away Gospels and just replace all the Gospels with a, a highly edited or redacted version of Luke. So his point is that there are four Gospels, and he writes as if he's assuming that these Gospels are already established. He's not, uh, if you read him, there's nothing novel about what he's trying to say. He quotes these Gospels profusely. He quotes Paul profusely. It seems with the assumption that the people that are reading this don't need to be convinced that these things are the word of God, that these things bear authority. So the, the use of four there and those numbers is just validating, yeah, there's four like there's four corners of the earth. There's four like there's four winds. There's four like there's uh, four faces of the cherubim. And you get the impression that these gospels are already accepted. 
And what he's saying is, we don't want to add to them, but we don't want to take away from them. Otherwise, we'll, we'll ruin this harmony that exists between the number of Gospels and the world that we live in. And we, we sort of looked at the, this idea of enlightenment certainty, where the only way we can really reason properly is to use enlightenment methods of the scientific method and so forth. And uh, during this time, uh, they didn't use that type of reasoning. They did to some degree, but really what they were concerned about was harmony, what was beauty, what was balance and things like that. And they believed there was sort of a, what we would call a platonic or neoplatonic worldview where you had eternity, the things of God, and those things are modeled uh, in the same patterns on earth. So we should, should see these, these patterns. So if there's, there's four gods, Gospels, uh, and we see four winds, we see four corners of the earth, we, we see four cherubim, anything that matches up with that four is, is a validation that these four things are all we need. Um, and that was part of the way that they reasoned. If we see it in heaven, then we should see some evidence of it here on earth, those same patterns. One of my favorite examples of this is Justin Martyr. And it's with his dialogue with Trifo. We're going to see a little bit more about Justin today, but he, he was a little, he was a, a predecessor of um, Irenaeus, wrote about 160, 170 AD. But he's arguing with this Jew named Trifo. It's, the book is called Dialogue with Trifo. And he's showing the, the importance and the necessity of the cross, how important the cross is to God's purposes, and trying to get this guy to believe, to turn from his Judaism and believe. And he says, look, you want to know how important the cross? He says, look out in the world. He says, look at man when man stands and st stretches out his arms. What do you see? Well, you see a cross. He's probably referring to that, that picture of Leonardo da Vinci where the man's standing like this and it shows all the, the proportions. Well, in the ancient world, a, a cross could either be an X or a, a beam like this. So th this was a cross and that was a cross. There's no distinction. But he said, look, look at it. All the proportions when man stands. But what is he? Well, he's a cross. If you look out into the ocean, what do you see? You see boats. Well, what do boats have? They have crosses, they have masks, and they have the, the, the beams. He says, look at your face. What do you have? Well, you have eyebrows, and he actually uses this illustration. You have eyebrows, and you have a nose. It, it's clear as a nose in your face that crosses are everywhere, and therefore that should have validated to Trifo that, yes, the cross is important, and you should turn from Judaism and embrace the cross. Now, we think that's nonsense, but, but it, was, it was a powerful argument in his day that it, the, the world that we live in is patterning the world of heaven, the world, the eternal world. And we see that, and we see the importance of the cross to God in its use everywhere in the world. And again, it seems like nonsense to us, but we should at least enjoy reading it. And when you, when you read uh, Justin Martin, you can just see the zeal coming out. Like, yeah, I finally got him here. You know, he's going to have to believe after this. But uh, Trifle obviously doesn't believe, but uh, it's just a... Uh, to me, it's, it's almost like a childish but a very delightful way for them to reason and, and use the gifts God gave them uh, to convince the world. So but we saw that. And again, what, what, what's happening with Irenaeus is that people are seeing this argument, the, the unbelieving scholars, and saying, well, he's using such a stupid argument that um, this had to be something new. This is an argument for their authority. And it had to be something novel or new because it's so bad. It's a tenuous argument, they, they say, and, uh, or a desperate attempt to prove the gospel authority. And no, he's already accepted the gospels. The church has already received four gospels. He's just defending, he, he's sort of hemming in that number four, that we don't need more than four, we don't need less than four. And when you read Irenaeus and all these men, it's very important that they state that this is what we received. 
This is what we got from our forefathers. This is what was given to the church. There's nothing novel about what he's saying, that this is something that I'm going to uh, convince you of because you've never heard of it before. No, it, it was received uh, from the, from, by the church from those who preceded him. So uh, when we look at Irenaeus, he's not coming up with anything novel. This argument for the four Gospels is a normal argument that would have been very persuasive uh, to those in his day, not necessarily modern secular scholars or even at, at times us, but it was uh, a powerful argument in his day. So that, that's Irenaeus, look, looking a little bit more at what he wrote and what he meant. Now, if Irenaeus wasn't pre, uh, preventing, pre, promoting something novel or something new, then we should see it in other places. We should see the same idea in his contemporaries, those who lived at the same time as he did, and we should also see it in his predecessors. Maybe not as clearly, but there should be some idea of this canon in the predecessors, the man who came before him, as well as those who were his contemporaries. So let's today look at his contemporaries and look at one of his predecessors, and next week we'll look at uh, look deeper into his predecessors. Um, were there people living at the same time as Iran? who also believed the same thing he did. Um, and, and there are a number of people who did, very clearly did. Uh, the first we have is not necessarily a person, but we have, it's what's called the uh, Mortarian uh, Fragment. Uh, and it, what this is, we've looked at this before, I believe. It, it's a, uh, the earliest canon that we have, list that we have of the books of the Bible. I think I have a picture of it here. Nope, my mouse, my mouse disappeared. Yeah, so it, it, just kind of a timeline. Uh, there's when Irenaeus wrote his Against Heresies. You know, can see the Bible, uh, the writing of the Bible ended about 110 AD. So we've got this period here from 110 to 170. So we're looking right now at the contemporaries of Irenaeus from about 160 to 170 AD. And then we'll look also at his, his predecessors. But uh, here's the what the Mortarian canon looks like. Okay, that's basically, not that means anything, but that's basically, it's a uh, Greek text, um, and it was, a, uh, it was discovered by a guy, a guy named Ludovasio Antonio Moratori, which is where it gets its name from, uh, and it was discovered in a library in Milan and published in about 1740 AD. Uh, and the manuscript is from the 7th century, so the manuscript is, is rather old, but it's dated at about 170 AD to 180 AD. And that's because in the, in the letter, the author refers to the episcopate of Pius I, who had recently died, and that, he died in about 157. AD. So if that was recent, then this thing is probably no more than, 100, or than uh, 170 to 180 AD. So this actually is probably 10 years before Irenaeus actually wrote. And again, what it is, it's a list and a defense of the books of the Bible that they believe was part of the canon. And uh, it's amazing how much it lists here. Uh, it lists all four Gospels are mentioned here as being inspired. Uh, it mentions the book of Acts. It mentions 13 epistles of Paul. And again, this is a list of books that, that he considers to be part of the canon. Uh, there's Jude, there's First and Second John, and possibly Third John. Uh, it's a very, um, uh, what would you say, uh, corrupt. There's holes in it and stuff like that. And so sometimes we're not sure uh, what he's talking about or there's something missing. Uh, Revelation, Hebrews, James, First and Second Peter. So there, there's about 24 or 25 of the 27 books of the Bible mentioned here. 
Um, he also puts in the Apocalypse of Peter and the Wisdom of Solomon as part of this uh, a canon as well, which is typical of this time. Remember, we're talking about the very edges of the canon. Uh, the main books are established. The first, uh, uh, the main 24, 25 books are established. There's a few that, that come in and out that should be, and a few that, that, that shouldn't be. So um, without an established canon, we expect that. And again, this is a time period where the canon is slightly in flux. But again, it, it's 95, 96% established at this time. So again, a, a man who, or a writing that is contemporary to Irenaeus, and what is he saying? That there are four gospels that there are 13 epistles of Paul, that there's other uh, Catholic books that we call Jude, First and Second John, uh, there's Revelation, Hebrews, Peter, uh, a, a great expanse of books that are mentioned here as part of the canon. And again, it really presents a problem for those who are defending this idea that Irenaeus is sort of the architect of the canon, what they call the Big Bang Theory, that there is this harmony uh, between text and oral tradition, and then Irenaeus comes and suddenly poof, the, the canon appears out of nowhere. Uh, this uh, fragment is a, a strong argument against that. And what do they do? Well, they, they try to push it back to the fourth century. Well, it's not really that early. So what he wrote here about being uh, the reign of Pius I being uh, just recent is a lie. It's a fabrication. And uh, it, it's been studied by scholars, secular scholars, and uh, it's really not accepted. They, they've really done a good job of showing it. No, it really does. Not Christian scholars, but secular scholars have done a good job of showing it. It should be around 170 to 180 AD. The idea of it being in the fourth century is, is, is nonsense. So, again, a, a very good argument against uh, this idea of Irenaeus being the originator of the canon. Again, it puts the formation of a central canon around 170 to 190 AD. At this time, we have a canon. Uh, we we're just dealing again with the edges of that canon, just a few missing books that have been added. Now, again, the implication is that Irenaeus was not an innovator, uh, that he was promoting an already established canon in his writings. Any questions or comments before we move on? Now, the next man is a guy by the name of Theophilus, Theophilus of Antioch, and he was a bishop of Antioch. Um, he ha only has one very small surviving work called To Autoclycus, and it was written around 177 AD, so again, not just a contemporary of Irenaeus, but probably 20 years before he wrote. And in this book, it's an apologetic book, where he, he's trying to persuade this man, uh, Autoclycus, that the Christian writings have the same level of integrity and authority that the Old Testament writings do. So he's trying to convince a man that we have these books, they don't call them the New Testament yet, but they're new books, and that they have the same authority as the old, despite the fact that they are newer books. So it seems like the perfect place to demonstrate your view of the Gospels. Um, then to make this claim, he shows that, that these books have the same level of inspiration by the Holy Spirit that the older books do. So if they have the same authority, then we can say that they are the same, the same uh, level of inspiration that we can say that they have the same authority. And he says this, concerning the righteousness which the new law enjoyed, confirmatory utterances are found both with the prophets and the gospels because they all spoke inspired by one spirit. 
So here's a man in 177 AD uh, claiming that the Gospels uh, are, are inspired by the Spirit just as the Old Testament books are. Therefore, they have the same exact authority as those Old Testament books. Now, the question is, uh, what Gospels is he referring to? He just uses the word Gospels here. Well, uh, when we look at his, this writing, again, a very small writing. We know he wrote a lot more than this, but this is only the writing that survived. He quotes all the Gospels except Mark. So he's got three Gospels, Mark is excluded, and we believe he knew about Mark because Jerome, a few centuries later, uh, centuries later mentioned that Theophilus actually composed a harmony of all four Gospels, which is now lost to us. Jerome hasn't, uh, but it's been lost to us. Remember, we studied Jerome, looked at Jerome. Remember what he did? He went all over the ancient world and looked in libraries. Uh, looked in monasteries for ancient manuscripts that he would actually take and copy, and that facilitated his creating of the Vulgate. But he didn't just look for um, New Testament or Old Testament manuscripts. Anything he could find, he would collect and copy. And in this endeavor, uh, he did say that, yes, Theophilus did write a harmony of the four Gospels. So he did recognize, uh, according to a very reliable historical source, just a couple hundred years after him, that he, he did accept the Gospel of Mark as authoritative. As for other books of the Bible, uh, he quotes most, most of Paul's epistles, Titus, 1 Timothy, and puts all these books at, at the same level of the Gospels and their authority. So we have here another uh, contemporary of Irenaeus saying that there are three Gospels that are equal in authority to the Old Testament because they are inspired by God, and he probably included Mark in that. He just doesn't say it in this very small treatise that he is writing. At least he doesn't quote from Mark. He, does, he doesn't say, and the Gospels are Matthew, uh, Luke, and John. He just says they're the Gospels, and then we know that he quotes from those other three, so we think, know he at least includes those. Um, again, includes almost all Paul's epistles, Titus, 1st and 2nd Timothy, uh, and again, these are the same level of authority as uh, uh, the Gospels. Um, so that's two, the, 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 uh, the fragment Theophilus of Antioch, and we have a third one, uh, a man by the name of Titan, who was from Syria, and he was actually a disciple of Justin Martyr, who we're going to see next. And uh, he wrote a, a very famous harmony of the Gospels called the Diatessaron uh, that was composed of all four Gospels. Now, this was done in uh, Syriac, not Greek. So this actually shows that these Gospels were, were translated. They went through a phase of translation into other languages, which is very significant because it meant they had time to, to propagate, they had time to be accepted, and they had time to be translated into the Syrian language. And Titan, he went around and, and took these Gospels and tried to make a, a running, a coherent narrative of the life of Christ from all four Gospels, uh, of a narrative of his life and death. And he wanted to demonstrate by doing this that there are no inconsistencies in the Gospel narratives. And this is the first harmony of the Gospels that we have. And it goes all the way back to about 170, 180 AD, actually before, 20 years before uh, Irenaeus wrote. Um, and again, it was a very famous uh, writing. Uh, it was used for hundreds of years in a church to, to, and, as a, uh, in their worship to actually read the scriptures, read from. So we have a Titan as well making a harmony of the gospel very early, uh, a man who was a disciple of Justin Martyr. And we think, well, he probably got his ideas from Justin Martyr, and we'll see that they probably did come from him. 
Uh, the fourth example uh, of a contemporary of Irenaeus is a man by the name of Clement of Alexandria. And he was slightly later than Irenaeus, about 198 AD, but he's still considered a contemporary uh, of Irenaeus. Uh, for his day, he, he was char in charge of the uh, a, a catechism school of Alexandria, and he was really considered an intellectual giant of his day. He was very well read, uh, both in biblical and extra-biblical literature. He, he knew uh, a, a wealth of knowledge he brought to the, uh, the task of defending and, and proclaiming the gospel. Uh, he used not only the scriptures, but also he would bring many of these extra-biblical writings in, uh, and apocryphal writings as well, such as the preaching of Peter, Gospel of the, uh, of the Egyptians, and the Gospel of Hebrews. So not only did he use uh, the biblical text, but if there was a... a uh, a book outside the Bible that was helpful, he would use it. And we know that, that, that Paul did that at least in two places. And so th there's nothing necessarily wrong with that if you can use it to prove your point. Uh, if there's a presupposition that they believe that's right, that is uh, proven by their writings or, or, or their sacred scriptures, we can certainly use that. And uh, Alexander, he did that quite a bit. He used other writings. And he used uh, three apocryphal writings, again, the preaching of Peter, Gospel of the Egyptians, and the Gospel of Hebrews. Now, what uh, scholars will say as well, because he quotes from these books, uh, he means he considers them canonical, and therefore uh, that throws the whole idea of a canon into question. And that's not necessarily true. As we've studied the Apocrypha, uh, we know that many men would quote the Apocrypha. We, we learned that Calvin quoted the Apocrypha a number of times. So there's nothing wrong uh, with them quoting these books when they wanted to make a point, because they did consider them to be very important books that were uh, worthy to be read, uh, worthy to be uh, used in teaching, but not for doctrine. Remember, they, they classified the Apocrypha as helpful. They put it in their Bibles, but it wasn't to be used for doctrine or for disputations. Um, and Jerome was the one who came up with this, and there's evidence that Jerome wasn't the one who made it up, that it could, there's a precedent of other people before him believing that, and I think what we see with Alexander is, is that precedence here. Yeah, these books are good, they're helpful, but they're not sacred scripture, they're not the actual scriptures themselves. Um, Again, like men of his day, he saw nothing wrong with quoting other writings and apocryphal works. And, and he expressly confirms that there are only four traditional gospels that the church receives. And he mentions that these are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, so he may use other gospels, but he explicitly states that there are four traditional received gospels. Um, he does quote, again, from the Gospel of the Egyptians, but he intentionally downplays the quote and says that it, this quote does not occur anywhere in the four canonical Gospels. So he quotes it, he uses it to make a point, but then says, you know, keep in mind that this is not one of the four traditional Gospels. So he puts a, a line between it and separates it in its authority from the other Gospels. One writer says this, uh, Clement's relative generosity towards apocryphal texts and traditions, which is connected with the unique spiritual melu in Alexandria and its consistent, constant controversies with many kinds of dis, uh, discussion partners, should not obscure the fact that even for him, the apostolic origin and special church authority of the four Gospels was already unassailable. Uh, Clement also quotes, or actually... Um, 
Yeah, Clement quotes from uh, all Paul, Paul's 13 epistles, Hebrews, Acts, 1 Peter, and 1 and 2 John, Jude, and Revelation. So he quotes from pretty much uh, every uh, New Testament book except for a handful. And he quotes them, again, with authority, with the authority of God himself. And there's no indication anywhere uh, that this idea of canon was novel or that he was simply parroting the words of Irenaeus. Th these gospels, he says, are received. They are handed down to us and given to us by those who came before. So there's nothing novel about what he's saying here, what he's putting forth, at least in his mind. Um, and, and we see differences. If you're still worried about the, well, he quoted the Apocrypha or these other books, uh, just the, the balance of his quotations uh, is rather illuminating. He, he quoted the Gospel of Matthew 500 or 757 times. He quoted Luke 402 times. He quoted John 331 times. He quoted Mark 182 times. And he quoted the apocryphal books only 16 times. So a small, small sliver of his quotes actually are made from these books. The mo most of his book, his quotes, by far, uh, the most books are from the actual canonical traditional gospels. So uh, I think the level of authority he gives them is reflected in the number of times that, that he quotes them. So, conclusion, we see a clear pattern emerging at the end of the second century. It appears that Irenaeus was not alone in his understanding of what the canon was. According to the uh, Mertorian fragment, a Theophilus of Antioch, Clement of Alexandria, and, and, and Titan, uh, this, uh, that there was a, uh, a, a diverse uh, sources of canon by the end of the second century. Uh, there was a core collection of scriptural books uh, in place that the church fathers themselves uh, did not simply view as new or recently established. These go back to the predecessors before them and uh, were received by the church. Such widespread belief cannot be explained solely by the Big Bang Theory that the canon just dropped down uh, based on Irenaeus' works. Um, it must have roots that predate the end of the second century. So any, any questions about that? Don't have a whole lot of light here, but the light that we do have, I, I think, shines very specifically on the fact that, yes, that there was a, a canon at the time. The, the edges were not quite defined yet, but there was still a, a canon that consisted almost always of the four Gospels and of Paul's writings and many of the, the what we would call the Catholic epistles. Any questions or comments? Okay, now, predecessors of Irenaeus. We've seen that those, his contemporaries, pretty much held his view. What about the predecessors? Again, this is the um, middle and early part of the second century. If we go back to our... Back to it. But this was going to be helpful, it's not. Anyway, if you see that one in the corner up there, that's what I'm referring to. <laughs> and we're, we're, go, we're going from the, uh, maybe page up will get me there. Let me see. Oh, there we go. Okay. Just got to go the right direction. Okay, there we go. So what we're dealing with now is we've seen uh, this period here, about 160, 180. Now we're going to deal with this period here. What, what do we know about that period here? And th this part of, of our study is rather difficult. And I'm dividing up into two parts. Um, and, and the reason it's hard is because we just don't have very many writings at this time. Uh, they're not uh, well-preserved. There's not a large number of them. 
And uh, the manner uh, that they were often quoted is very difficult to grasp what they're actually quoting. Sometimes it seems that they're just uh, parroting out the words of Paul without any direct quote. You know, thus saith Paul, or Paul said, it's just sort of a, a ram not rambling, but running on and inserting phrases that sound familiar, but we're not really sure where they are from. We can get an idea, but it's much more difficult uh, to hone in on what the quotes actually are. So that, that's the first problem, is that the method of citation makes it very different. Uh, they're not nearly as clear as Irenaeus and his contemporaries when they actually are quoting scripture or just parroting or mouthing words of the apostles or words of the gospels. And another problem, and this is, we're going to see some more of this next week, is that during this time, there are, are still traditions in circulation that were not part of the canonical gospels, that... Um, were still considered as authoritative. Remember, before the canon began forming, there were books like Paul's books. There were probably a few gospels going around, but there was also oral tradition. Uh, maybe your, your neighbor heard Christ say something. Maybe you had another document. We know that Luke, when he composed his gospel, where did he get the material from? Was he collected it from many different sources, and he examined it and determined which ones were, were true eyewitness accounts, and he brought that into the gospel. Now, we know we did, he did that under inspiration, but still, that was the methodology he used, find other sources that existed and bring them together into one accurate account of the life of Christ. So instead of using the four gospels like Titan did, he went and got all the material he could find and put that together for a gospel. So we know these things existed, and there would be nothing wrong with them referring to them. If you didn't have four uh, gospels that the boundaries had been clearly defined around, and you, that's what you had at this time, then yeah, sure, okay. Uh, you know, I've got a document somebody wrote where Christ said this. And if you think of the, the Sermon on the Mount, how long does it take to read a Sermon on the Mount? About five minutes, 10 minutes. You think Christ got all those people out there and gathered them all together, sat them down, preached for five or 10 minutes and left? Now, this is probably a lot longer. He probably talked for hours in a sermon on the Mount. What we're seeing is a, a summary of what he taught, an accurate, inspired summary, but a, a summary nevertheless. Uh, same thing can be said of his other sermons. Same thing can be said of the, uh, the, the sermons in Acts. You think Paul finally got all these pagans together at Mars Hill and gave them, like, what, four or five-verse sermon and then let them go? No, he probably held them there for hours. So what we see are summaries. And other portions of the Sermon on the Mount could have been in circumstances and people could have referred to them. And often what we find in these men's writings is words that we see, okay, they're actually referring to what Christ did or said here, but we can't find that anywhere in the Gospels. Where are they getting it from? And, and the theory is they're getting it from these other traditions that existed. So it, it's, it shouldn't uh, make us doubt the Gospel, but it encourages us. Yeah, they, they had sources that God gave them that they used a, a, until the boundaries were defined around the canon. But that makes it difficult to study them, because we don't know exactly when they're quoting the Bible and when they're quoting tradition, because sometimes it's very, very close. Now, the first one we're going to look at today, any questions or comments about that? Okay. First person we're going to look at today is Justin Martyr. And uh, he wrote about three decades before Irenaeus, uh, about 150 to 160 AD, and he was actually a, a teacher member of, of Titan himself who wrote this Harmony of the Gospels, uh, the first Harmony of the Gospels. And, and there's evidence that he actually held the four Gospels, that he limited the, the thing, the four Gospels. Uh, he refers to them as plural, 
meaning there's more than one. He describes them as being drawn up by his apostles and those who followed them. Now, what is this a reference to? Apostles and those who follow them. Remember, there's four gospels. Two are written by apostles. We have Matthew and John. And two are written by who? Mark and Luke. Who are they? Well, there are those who followed the apostles. So here, here's strong indication, without saying there are four, that the, the traditional four that we have are the ones that he saw as gospels, as uh, part of the canon. So indicates the two of the gospels that he knew about were written by apostles, Matthew and John, and two, one, at least two, were written by followers, Mark or Luke. Um, Again, this is language that's later used by other fathers uh, in reference to the four Gospels. The, those who saw were apostles or those who accompanied apostles it is a reference to the four Gospels themselves. Uh, Justin, in his quoting, he quotes the, the three synoptic Gospels. We know what a synoptic Gospel is, right? It's Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synoptic. John is sort of a, a very unique gospel, the way it's written. It's written so much later, uh, a lot of different themes in it. So it's, it's sort of separated from the synoptic gospels. So synoptics are, are the, the first three gospels. Uh, he quotes extensively from them. Um, and the question of whether he knew John, uh, there, there's evidence that he did know about John. Uh, he regarded the book of Revelation as being written by John. He uses a lot of the terminology that John uses. He loves to use the idea of, of logos, where we get from 1 John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. That idea is logos there. Uh, Justin loves using the idea of, of logos being reason, because he believed that, that we could reason. Uh, to, the gospel was reasonable. It was rational. Therefore, Christ was, was labeled as as the Logos. Uh, he even quotes uh, John 3, 3 directly, for Christ also said, except you be born again, ye shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So we have a direct quote uh, of a very important uh, verse in uh, John. All these considerations uh, and the fact that he, he discipled Titan, uh, who went to create a harmony of all four Gospels, point to the fact that Justin believed in, in the four canonical just, uh, Gospels. Now, What's interesting is I've been using the word gospels here, but he, he never referred to them as gospels. Uh, he referred to them as memories. The Greek word he uses is memories, not gospel. And, and there's a reason for that. And uh, some scholars say, uh, well, some scholars say, well, because he uses the idea of memories or memoirs, that he didn't see them as authoritative or canonical. And uh, there may be some truth to that, but I think that the real reason he uses that is because he was a, an apologist. He wanted to convince people uh, that the life of Christ was what, what these books said it was, and that he was the Son of God, that he did come and die on a cross for sinners, and that, that believing in him, you could have uh, eternal life. That was his main goal. And if we referred to these books as, as memoirs, it would have made more sense to the people who are hearing him teach and talk about these things. Yeah, these are memories of this person in Christ. It's what's left to us of his life that we can study and learn and gain insight into who he was and what he did by reading these things. And when you're explaining that to somebody uh, that doesn't know the idea of a gospel, uh, a memoir would probably be a very effective uh, apologetic tool. So doesn't mean he didn't see they were authoritative, uh, but that they were simply, it was a word that sort of neutralized these writings so that a person would accept them as what they really are, that is, memoirs of the person and life of Christ. Second, uh, these writings were also used in worship alongside the writings of the Old Testament. 
he says this very famous uh, description of what happened in, in church on Sunday. Uh, and Jessica gives one of the first, the earliest examples, a very detailed example of what worship was like, what they actually did in worship. And this is one, a quote from that. He says, on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities and in the country gather together to one place. And the memoirs of the apostles there, the gospels, memoir, memories, mem memories of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read. So what is he doing here? He's putting the reading of these memoirs on the same level as the reading of the prophets. So we read from both of these things. They both have authority, the same level of authority in the church. He says, as long as time permits, then when the reader has ceased, uh, the, the, has ceased, the president verbally instructs and exhorts on the imitation of these good things. So they read these gospels, they read these writings, including the Old Testament, for as long as we can, and then we spend time, the rest of that time, uh, teaching them, uh, exhorting people, verbally instructing them on the things that we have read to them. So that shows the, the central place uh, of these gospels in the worship and in the life of the church, indicating that, that they did have authority for, for Justin and his day. And also, what's interesting about the manuscripts during this time is that when you look at them, uh, they have reading aids in them which is very instructive. Manuscripts at this time, basically, they didn't have the reader in mind. They were written in a way that eased the preservation and production of the manuscript. So when you wrote something out, there was no spaces. Paper was expensive. You had to kill a calf. You had to go through all this uh, trouble of, of preserving this, this uh, leather or <coughs> vellum, it was called. Uh, so there was no spaces. You just wrote in one big sentence. No punctuation. Uh, words were often squeezed together as close as you could get them because all you cared about was that this was taken and could be read by somebody else and copied by somebody else and be preserved. So uh, no spaces, no punctions, no punctuation, no commas, nothing, just word after word after word, no paragraphs, nothing. And at the time of Justin, we start noticing that these manuscripts, manuscripts of the Gospels are different. They have reading aids. They have paragraphs. There's, there's large spaces, so you can actually not have your eye drift down on another line because it's only a micrometer away. Uh, there, there are commas. There are actually uh, dashes and long words. There are dashes in the syllables to help you pronounce that word. There's uh, symbols that say, take a breath here. You're going to be reading a long sentence here, so take a breath. So the reader could, and then start reading because they don't want you to stop once you start reading that. So there's all these reading aids that confirm what? that these were actually used in the church, read in the church, showing, again, the authority uh, that these have. Uh, what, did, what did he think about Paul? Well, there's not much evidence that, that he was aware of Paul's letters. Uh, some scholars... Um, think he, he knew of Romans, he quoted Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians, but again, they're sort, of, they're sort of shadowy translations. We're not sure if he's just recalling something that he heard and, and very badly paraphrasing it, or does he really have Paul in mind when he's quoting these things? And next week, I'll try to find some examples of that. Uh, I won't be here next week, but the week after that, examples of that. Um, so, and since his writings were mainly apologetic, he, he sought to prove uh, the reliability of the life and death of Christ. So his emphasis was on the Gospels. A person that was listening to him probably wouldn't have cared about what Paul said. His goal was to present the person of Christ, his love for the world, the work that he did on behalf of man, and his source for that was primarily the Gospels, not the writings of Paul. Um, 
He did say that the apostles, not necessarily Apostle Paul, but all the apostles in general, that, that their words were the words from God. So we know that if he did have a, a Pauline epistle, that he would have seen that as God's word. If he had a, a Petrine epistle, that would have been God's word to him. Um, and he says that Christ himself spoke through the words of the apostles uh, so that there were any of their writings they would have had would have had the authority of Christ himself. So any questions or comments about Justin Martyr? Very fascinating guy. I, I love reading Justin Martyr, I love, especially that, that illustration about the cross. I love reading that. Um, anything else about Justin Martyr? Any questions or comments? Okay. Um, Apostolic Fathers. We're going to put this off until next week. We just don't quite have time to do this. What we'll do, we'll look at Apostolic Fathers, and then we'll summarize and then move on to, uh, to, to, to like the authority of Scripture. We'll actually get back to the confession and follow the, the instruction in the confession. Um, but again, the Apostolic Fathers, are, again, are, are difficult because we don't know where they're getting their sources from. Sometimes it's clear it's the Bible. Sometimes it's not clear. Is, is it a paraphrase? Is it another source that existed that they quoted from? That's not part of the Gospels. That wasn't composed in, or put into the Gospels when they were finally formalized. Uh, we just don't know. And uh, most of their writings are very practical. Uh, Justin and many of his followers were, were uh, apologists, so that they wrote very definite, uh, purposefully. Where these men are writing letters to other churches to encourage them, uh, to exhort them. So they're, they're mainly uh, pastoral letters that they wrote, which is again uh, not easy to discern where the Bible starts and where their tradition starts, where the Bible starts, where their uh, paraphrasing starts, or, 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 or such. So we'll look at a little bit more of these men. They're fascinating men, but a little bit more difficult to discern what they believed about the Bible. We know what they quoted; they consider to be authoritative. Just the extent of what they consider to be the canon is a little bit, a little bit more murky. Okay, any questions or comments? Okay, get out. Only four minutes or I'll put you out early now, but four minutes. So anyway, thanks for your attention and I uh, appreciate your concentration.